Welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And guess what? what? We, didn't, we didn't really quit the show like like I said I was going to last week for the April Fool's post. Yeah, but we're recording this from the future. Oh, we are recording this in the future. So maybe we will quit the show. Ooh, and nobody will ever know. Time travel. I think my nose oh. is bleeding. It probably is. Gross. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So. Anyway, yeah. So we we have a, a special guest joining us for history again uh, this week. It's our good friend Bob Gurr. Yay! N- name drop. Let me pick it up. Here it is. <laughs> uh, I actually recorded this little little Disney history segment with Bob at Disneyland, uh, talking about the monorail as the monorail was passing behind us. So I apologize for some of the wind. I tried to fix it as much as it much as I could. It's a little I, little wonky at times. I thought the wind was the crowd noise. The crowd it was. Cheering. It was the crowd okay. cheering because okay. myself and Bob Gurr were chatting about the monorail. Gotcha. So good times, good times. But awesome. let's jump right into it, shall we? It's time for Disney History! So hello, I'm here at uh, Disneyland, uh, and yet again joining me is Bob Gurr. How are you today, Bob? I'm good every day, every day, especially when I get to meet people I've never met. We're standing here with Jeff. Yeah, today was fun. We got to... uh, I met Bob for the first time. We've been talking for a couple of months. We had lunch in the Blue Bayou, and uh, now we're here in Disneyland hanging out. And you hear that in the background? That's the monorail. And we're going to talk a little bit about the monorail today. So uh, what, what can you tell me about the monorail? Well, don't you have a specific question you want to ask about the monorail? Well, Otherwise, uh, like talking to Rolly Crump, we'll be here till a week from Tuesday <laughs> because I'll have, to, I'll have to start in at 1958. Uh, so, all right, let, let's, let's narrow it down then. How about, um, obviously most people know what the monorail is because they use it when they go to Walt Disney World and here at Disneyland. Is there an aspect of the monorail that you enjoy the most over everything else? Maybe something you're particularly proud of or? Well, yes. If you look at the Disneyland Resort, you'll find the icon of the original monorail shapes are in the graphics all over the park. Um, all kinds of uh, illustrations, graphics, um, even gate markers, things like that. In fact, you go to the Disneyland Hotel and you'll find that the water slides are monorails. The monorail slides. We want yes. to go on them tonight. Right. We, we yeah. don't care how cold it is. We want yes. to go on the monorail slide. So, stop and think. This was uh, The original monorail was sketched up in uh, October of 1958. A 10-minute sketch on my kitchen table on a Saturday morning. Very basic, simple design. And it's lasted all these years. Here we are, 2013, and it has an iconic appearance to it that Disneyland Resort sort of adopted over all these years. I'd say there's very few things in this park that started with a quick sketch and have endured. Mm -hmm. So the monorail has a very special part in the Disneyland Resort just from that graphic appearance of it. I actually, I prefer this version of the monorail over the one at Walt Disney World, because this one, for whatever reason, just seems sleeker, and I don't, it's almost more futuristic than what they have. 
can see it. I don't know. I, I just like the design of it a lot better. Well, there are two different designs because the one at Walt Disney World has a um, taller vehicle mm. uh, because we have to have standees. Uh, this train here is a little bit smaller size because people are seated in it. But at the same time, the design of the um, Mark 7 here was done by Scott Drake, a designer at uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, who, when they wanted to redesign from the Mark um, 5 here to the Mark 7, since the Mark 6 is in Florida, he looked at all kinds of different designs and found out that, well, why don't we just use the original concept? So if you look at the pictures of the Mark 1 and the Mark 2 and the 3 here, and the 4 and the uh, 6 in Walt Disney World, this one has, has its own style. It has that Buck Rogers nose to it. Scott Drake simply took that same element and he made a, uh, a much sleeker, uh, more kind of a characteristic wraparound of the fins, um, sort of this all-encompassing uh, nose, um, so that it, everybody knows it like the original train, but it's also very, very modern, but all it did was repeat the exact same theme. <laughs> Is there a, what, what's the fastest you've ever gotten the monorail up to? Oh, actually, let me rephrase that. What's the safest speed that you can get it up to, and what's the fastest you've actually ever taken it up to? Well, I've probably driven the um, the Mark III when we were doing testing here, because we ran it about 12,000 miles, and for one week I had to drive it uh, for eight hours a day, starting at the midnight shift, driving to 8 a.m. in the morning. Uh, so yes, I've got a lot of miles uh, driving a monorail here, oddly enough, but the um, there's something about this train and the way it circulates around the park. It's kind of a kinetic symbol, if you will, of, of Disneyland. Whereas the one in Florida, uh, it's actually a big workhorse because it transports people from one place to another. But originally, when we had the um, Mark II train here, when we added the amount of extra track to go to the Disneyland Hotel, it did serve a transport purpose. Mm -hmm. Do you know why? Because uh, no, Disneyland Hotel was further away, wasn't it? No, there no. was the monorail bar. The monorail bar? Did you know? Wait, there's a monorail bar? Or there there was. Two o'clock in the afternoon, um, while the children are going to take a nap, father could get on the monorail and go to the hotel and get off, get a martini, and then uh, 30 minutes later come back. So we could actually use monorail to go get an afternoon snort. Uh, so it actually w has a, a very good purpose. I had no idea. That's well, you awesome. See, you see how much history you unleash if you'll ask the right question? Oh okay, how long did that last for? Because I had no idea that even existed. When they uh, redesigned the hotel, they had uh, you know, the bigger towers. They did take out the old original uh, monorail bar, mm -hmm. which was right at the loading platform. So you didn't it have seems to. seems dangerous to me for no, some reason. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't have to go very far. You just stepped out, out of the uh, exit uh, turnstile, make a right turn, and you're in the bar. <laughs> I'd be afraid that the pilots of the monorail would be getting off every once in a while to uh, have a little drink themselves. <laughs> I'll, I'll bet they probably would have loved to do that, but if they're. Um, Supervisors saw them, they just go out the exit and keep on walking. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
see what else is there about the monorail. Um, is there any? Actually, I don't even know what to ask about the monorail. So are, are, are you a journalist that is now speechless? Yeah, I am. I was totally thrown off by the by the bar aspect of it. That sounds like it's an awesome idea. Still, kind of like you get off the ESPN zone. That's true. I mean, along those same lines, when we were in Disney World, you know do the monorail bar crawl now where we, we take the monorail to all the resort hotels mm-hmm. in the resort room and we get off we have a drink at every bar and we go around so i guess it's kind of the same thing but yeah you see you you're doing it in florida like the way we started here Thirty-three built with a beautiful wine list and a, and a very nice bar. Uh, he, he knew a lot of people really had enjoyment here, but it was entirely proper to have a place nearby where uh, a gentleman could go get a libation when they when they felt like it, and um, without the rest of the family having to go along with him. Because if I had my granddaughter in a stroller, I'm not sure I'd go into a bar with her. But I could leave her here with the rest of the family, and I could go over by Monorail to the Disneyland Hotel Monorail Bar and uh, enjoy my libation while uh, the family stayed here and changed diapers. <laughs> he's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Windows on Main Street, discover the real stories of the talented people featured on the Windows of Main Street USA by Chuck Snyder, published in 2009, and it's 26 pages. So the windows above Main Street at Disneyland and Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom have always been one of those not-quite-so-hidden details of the parks. Uh, It's also one of the uh, frequent segments on CommuniCore Weekly. You know, the greatest online show? I've never heard of that show before. Uh Yeah. It's it, it's small, but it's gaining stature. As we go, anyways. So uh, when Walt Disney actually added names on the windows of Main Street at Disneyland, well, really before opening day, he started a tradition that would be followed by his brother Roy for the Magic Kingdom as well. And according to Marty Sklar, who helped write the rules for the windows, Walt wanted to honor the original cast members of Disneyland that helped with designing building and uh, enabling the creation of the park itself. And if you're wondering if you're ever going to get a window on Main Street, here are the three requirements. Number one, only on retirement. Number two, only the highest level of service, respect, or achievement. And number three, agreement between top individual park management and Walt Disney Imagineering which creates the design and copy concepts. So we're not going to get windows is what you're saying. You and I, no, no, not unless we, you know, sort of go in there undercover one evening, ninja style and put up our own windows. Like remember that one window we talked about? Uh, We on John Hench's window at Walt Disney World to make it look symmetrical. Yes. Well, anyway, so uh, Chuck Snyder put this title together, which 
this book also appears on my Walt Disney World history post at Mice Chat of all the great Walt Disney World books you should have. He put it together when he was a cast member at Walt Disney World. Uh, but sadly enough, Chuck couldn't feature every name since the book still needed to be uh, quote-unquote affordable, according to Disney. <clears throat> That's all we'll say. I know, Jeff, I have something later. The, uh, the majority... <laughs> when do I not have something to add? <laughs> exactly. The, the majority of the book is an alphabetical look at the major players of both parks. There's a photo of each window and a really good mini-biography of each person. Chuck wasn't able to include the actual writing on the windows, but that just means we need to spend more time at the parks looking at the windows, right? Except yeah. when you're walking. You should actually pay attention when you're walking and then stop. So stop, and then look go to the up. Side and look, yeah. And well, okay, we can we can do that. So be a new Communicore Weekly dance. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, do it that way. The book is really really short, and it was a theme park exclusive, but still a great introduction to the majority of the creators of the park itself. And really, as a resource, the book is amazing. There's a complete map layouts of both main streets with each window tagged. There's also an index by name and location, so you can quickly look and see all the names at Disneyland and all the names at Walt Disney World and by far there are a lot more names at Walt Disney World than Disneyland there really is there is I mean you could have your own little window scavenger hunt if you wanted to that's true that's That'd true that's true it, it, it's a small book um, I liked it I'm glad it's part of my collection and it's one of those I think everybody should own and now I'll, I'll let Jeff take over I really <laughs> like the book a lot and and I, this is by no means any fault of Chuck, but I, I feel like Disney could have allowed him to expand on it more and made the book longer to include all the windows because Chuck only scratches the surface of, of some of the windows. I mean, at 26 pages, he does cover a lot in there, but he only scratches the surface of all the great tributes that uh, are on the windows. And I really wish they, they would have allowed him to create the book that... Uh, the, the subject matter required exactly it, it really it should have been a large coffee table book i agree you know, i agree it was about 200 pages long and it should have been about 45 50 bucks you know like the art of disney posters i think people would have paid for it i would have paid cherished for it. it hey so i'm, I'm gonna write it now that's what i'm gonna do <laughs> we'll do it that way and take our own there there are three names slash windows on each page as well which is kind of neat so it gives you an idea of you know he covered probably close to about you know 60 or 70 different windows altogether. So it's not too bad. It's not too bad. But yeah, this is a this is a definite I think from both of us uh two communicore thumbs up, right? Absolutely. four cuz I have both my thumbs up Ooh, too. That's true. Well then who's aren't you holding the record button? I with my toe. This is really hard. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Then we should probably move to the next segment. Okay, let's do that. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. So carrying on uh, along with George's book of the week here, this window is uh, its a window on Main Street, obviously, and it is Dr. Benjamin Silverstein, MD, General Practitioner, have a fever, have a flu, come on in and we'll cure you. Now, most of the windows that we cover here at Quindlecore Weekly, they all honor a real person that helped contribute to Walt's dream of building Disneyland. However, this window is actually just for atmosphere and doesn't honor any real person at all. 
Um, but it is notable for a couple of reasons. Um, it's actually located on the ground floor of the Emporium, and it's actually a window for a fake door. Now, next to the door itself, on the upper right-hand side, is a mezuzah, which is uh, very traditional outside of Jewish homes. Uh, and a mezuzah is a piece of parchment inside a decorative case, and it's inscribed with a verse from the Torah. And is, you know, it's affixed to the doorframe outside Jewish homes to fulfill the mitzvah, or biblical commandment, to inscribe the word, words of the Shema uh, on the knob posts of your house. So, as far as we can tell, this is really the only religious icon of any kind that is in the park year-round. You know, they do have a menorah during Hanukkah, they do have the Christmas tree during Christmas, but this is the only one that's there year-round. So it's it's a neat little detail that you should probably check out the next time you are there. Or if you're not feeling well, he'll, he'll make you feel better. Mm, it's almost a pretty cool five-legged goat. It is an almost pretty cool five-legged goat. However, uh -huh. he should probably call his mother. He doesn't talk to her enough. No, probably so not. So you hear Dr. Dr. Silverstein, call your mom. She misses you. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. When you're visiting Disney's Hollywood Studios and take a look in the animation courtyard, you'll find a remnant of the old Disney MGM Studios. I know we're forbidden to say that, but we figured we were allowed during the segment. Um, when the park first opened and was actually used as a backlot to make movies, they also made their traditional hand-drawn animation features there as well. And, cool enough, you can actually watch them in the animation courtyard, which means you can actually see them making these movies right in front of your eyes, like drawing the pictures. That's really neat. But Only if you didn't go on Sundays. If you did not go on Sundays, yes. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, all these animators were moved uh, eventually, uh, mostly when the park became a non-movie producing studio anymore. But if you visit these days, you can actually see the old desks that they worked on. And on one of them, it has a note attached to it from one of the animators that reads, Thanks, Florida, for all the memories. Well, thanks so much for watching, listening, and absorbing. Yeah, be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on the iTunes. We love to be rated. Yes, rate us often, please. Um, always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. Like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly, where you can find out if we're, we're going to quit doing the show on, on every April 1st. And we're just going to post that from now on. That would just be our April 1st thing. That we're that we're the show is ending. Yeah, we'll do it that way. Okay, we have to come up with some other fun things. What are we gonna what? do for Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day. If George sees his shadow, then the podcast will continue for another six weeks. And if Ooh. he doesn't, then we quit. <laughs> or we're stuck doing this forever. Oh, but we're already stuck doing this weekly. No, that's true. How could it be any worse? Anyways, um, <laughs> if you want other snarky and fun comments, follow both of us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Imagine Nerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Buckley. <laughs>